You're listening to Points in Between. This is episode two, A Day in the Life. Let's begin with a visualization exercise. Picture a school you attended, or maybe you're in it right now. How do you get there each day? Is the school fenced off from the rest of the world or open? What does it sound like right before classes begin? Where do you sit during the times when you're sitting, and how much space do you have to move around? A lot of people want you to spend your entire day there. So, is it, you know, a nice place to be? Think about your daily schedule. What time do you start school? When do you finish classes? How do you spend the rest of your day? Do you cross paths with different classmates as you move from room to room through the day, or do you pass the whole time as part of a single group? And what do you do all day? This episode of Points In Between looks at the day-to-day contours of school outside the U.S. It turns out a regular day of school means very different things in different places. There are innumerable versions of normal out there. Some of them will sound familiar, and some won't. This episode also introduces a mix of new voices, some of whom immigrated to the U.S., and a few of whom are here for shorter terms as international students. As in the last episode, they'll introduce themselves, occasionally in their first language, before you hear them speak in English. We're going to start with Juliana, a 21-year-old college exchange student from Brazil. Oi, meu nome é Juliana Faria e eu tenho 21 anos e eu sou do Brasil. She attended a private school in Brasilia, where she and her family lived. The first thing that you would notice was basically fences all around the school. And I don't know if in America it's like this. I, I I tend to think that it's really open, like the campus and all that kind of stuff. But in Brazil, it's, we always have like this fences. And then once you get inside, you will see everyone wearing the uniform with the name of the school. And yeah, you had very strict rules like, oh, you can't wear shorts at, at this at the size, very short or anything like that. And then you would go to class and one thing that is interesting is you would stay inside the class while the professor would come there and teach and then he would leave and then another professor would come. Compare this to the picture of school that you just conjured in your mind at the beginning of the show. Is Juliana right that your school is open to the outside world? Have you ever worn a school uniform or pushed the limits of the dress code? And what about the room where you learn math? Do you think of it as your room that the teacher visits, or is it the teacher's room? Our next stop is over 3,000 miles away across the Atlantic in the Gambia, a country on the coast of West Africa. My name is Linger Senghor. Linger's answer to where are you from is, as she says, mildly complicated. When I was five, my parents moved back to the Gambia, West Africa, which is where they're from. I lived there until I was 15, and then I moved to England for the last few years of high school, and then I came back to the United States. So I'm an American citizen, and I only got my Gambian citizenship in my mid-teens, but I see myself as being from the Gambia. The school Linger attended in the Gambia was founded by her grandfather. I asked her what I would see if I went to visit. I mean, a lot of 
Gambians. So a lot of people in uniform being really loud and friendly with each other and running around um, buildings that looked pretty underdeveloped compared to buildings you might be used to if you're from a more affluent part of the United States or even just like a middle class or even like a lower class part of the United States. Not many paved paths or anything like that. So a lot of sand, a lot of dirt, which we would walk across to get to our classes. Um, classrooms with, you know, actual chalkboards and things like that and like old wooden desks. And this always got to me because I was a really big reader when I was younger. But our library was full, full of donated like books for Africa books. And it's so many romance novels. And I'm like 11 and I'm trying to find stuff to read. And I, at this point now, I've read so many hundreds of romance novels because that's all we got and expired textbooks. Linger left the Gambia to finish up high school in Hertfordshire, England, which, if you're a literature buff, you might recognize. It's the home of the fictional Bennett family from Pride and Prejudice. That same year, a three-hour car ride from Linger's new home in England, Siobhan was about to finish high school in Cardiff, Wales. Four years ago, after college in Wales, she came to the U.S. to attend graduate school, but, you know, life doesn't always go to plan. In Seoul, she met someone, got married, and instead of heading back to Wales, embarked on a life in the U.S. I asked her to describe a school scene she thought any kid in Cardiff would recognize. A large building built in the 1960s or 70s, and it'd be raining. Um, they're usually very large. Mine had 2,000 children. Um, it's 11 to 18, so the cross-section of kids is much greater than here, so you have people who look like really like children up to fully grown adults. Uh, uniforms that all have ties or polo shirts that all match the school colours, um, but still sort of hectic, not particularly orderly, um, loud, boisterous. And did you have sports associated with school? Yes, somewhat, not very seriously. I played hockey, field hockey, and we would have... Um, practice twice a week during lunchtime so that only allowed us about 45 minutes of practice twice a week and then we would have one game a week uh, there wasn't there wasn't a league we weren't really playing in a league it wasn't taken as seriously by any means the practice that we had wasn't even really training I'm not entirely sure our teachers knew how to play hockey. Um, I will say in my school, they were much more serious about boys rugby. And so they had something a little bit more akin to sports here. Um, but that's fairly unusual. But then also there's this. Would you introduce yourself in Welsh? Americans often conflate the country of England with the UK, the United Kingdom, using the names interchangeably. Wales was conquered by England over 700 years ago and annexed by the English in the 16th century. But still, Wales is not England, and Siobhan is not English. You're probably wondering why I'm talking about this. There are two streams of education in Wales. One is an English language stream, and the other is a Welsh language stream. Um, you learn exactly the same things, but just the language in which you learn it is different. My parents decided to send me to the Welsh language stream. So when I was three, I went to a, having come from an English speaking home, I went to a uh, Welsh nursery school um, where it was just immersion. And by the time I was four and a half, I, I was fluent and then um, continued my education in Welsh until I was 18. 
So your parents didn't speak it, but you had all your education in Welsh. Exactly. Um, That's very common in Wales. It's becoming more and more common. For a couple of reasons, a lot of people like the idea of growing the language. But the other thing is, originally, uh, Welsh language schools were slightly better quality. So it was, you were getting a state education, it was free, but it was slightly better than most of the English language schools. And so that's really why my parents chose it. This was a striking contrast to Shiraj's description of his school in India and Linger's description of her school in the Gambia, both former parts of the British Empire. In both of those, English was still the language of instruction. The same is also true of many international schools today. I'm from Germany, so the actual way to pronounce my name is Tobias. Tobias's father is from Germany, and his mother comes from India. He was born in Germany, lived briefly in the U.S., went back to Germany again, and then lived in Belgium for most of his schooling. When I moved to Belgium, I was in an all-very international school. We represented over 75 different countries. Because of its location in relation to embassies in Belgium, Tobias's school had a large American student presence. So there were very, like, what you would consider, quote-unquote, American features of um, high school. We had prom. We had JV and varsity basketball. Like, if you would go into the gym, it would look a lot like the kind of gym that you would see at an American school, you know, with the banners hanging on the top of the arena. You would see you know, class of 2018, winners of these trophies. MVP um, was this player. So you felt a lot like you were at an American public school. In the introduction to this podcast, I talked about the feeling of that moment right before summer break begins as one of the shared experiences produced by schools. Memories of prom night and the feeling of trying out to play a varsity sport are two other pretty widely understood cultural reference in American schools. It's interesting that Tobias's international school picked these traditions to reproduce for their students. If you work in education, you already know that discussions about the school schedule can lead to pitched battles. Everyone connected to a school, from student to parent or guardian to teacher to administrator, Everyone feels the power of that schedule because it's the frame that defines the institution. It turns out there's a pretty wide breadth of options around the world. You're going to hear again from Juliana. She'll be joined by Xu Hui and Mia, exchange students from China, and Angel from Taiwan. Xu Hui attended a public boarding school, while Mia and Angel each attended regular public day schools. Uh, My name is Xu Hui. In, I'm from Nanjing, China. Uh, hi, um, I'm Mia. <laughs> uh, I'm an exchange student in Berkeley, and I'm from China. My name is Angel, and I come from Taiwan. Consider the differences in their daily schedules and what they're doing during that time. Yeah, a typical day would be getting up at uh, probably around 6.15 in the morning and then arriving at school at 7.15 and then staying there until 11.40, and then going home, having lunch, and then studying in the afternoon, and then going to bed. In Brazil, students typically attend school in shifts. This way, the same building and resources can be used for two or three groups of students. Even in affluent schools, where buildings don't do double or triple duty, the same schedule is often maintained. The typical day for me is I wake up approximately at 6 a.m. I grab some food. 
after that, I went to the classroom. And yeah, the whole day through, basically, I'm in the classroom. And basically, I will went to my dormitory at 11 p.m. And I will read some book in my bed. And then I get to sleep. Normal Chinese students, they want to get a good college. (laughs) And so like typical high school day would be like um, study all day. Yeah, from morning to uh, to night, actually. Basically, like you stay at school whole day. Oh, you have to arrive in the class before 7.30 a.m. And 5 p.m. you can leave the school. And you just sit in the same classroom the whole day. And the teacher will, would come to our classroom to teach. So we don't have to change our classroom just some like music and PE class we have to change the classroom and how many students were in each class each classroom near 40 60 more than 60 40 we don't have like that kind of like much um, out school activities and like we have restricted resources we don't have like theater or movies or sports practice china now develops more like uh, focus more about um about activities or like other things but we still focus on study like you know like basic study when you said you were in the classroom all day and then you went back to your room at 11 p.m were you in the classroom from like seven in the morning until 10 at night basically we will have breaks at between two classes and you can choose to go but i prefer to stay in the classroom (laughs) yeah basically um yeah we have a lot of things to do because we need to face the chinese girl cup which is a really important thing for us and what we need to do is just do those exercises all day long so you just study, study, so you can pass the Gaokao, so you can go to college? Yeah, not pass Gaokao, but excel in Gaokao. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a phenomenon, because it's a really important entrance exam for us to go to a high-level education, and basically it's the only way for us to go in, yeah. They may have shorter daily school hours, but Brazilian students also face a college entrance exam. This is challenging for kids who need to work outside of their comparatively short official school hours. And then sometimes we would do like extracurricular activities such as the called cursinho, which is basically preparing you for the big exam for college because in order for you to get to college, you need to pass this exam. It's like if you get a good grade you will you will get into the college that you want did you like it uh (laughs) i okay i didn't think of this because it's like i was forced to (laughs) to do that but um i i can say i like it because it's like with your classmate you can build the deeper friendship but of course it's kind of um 
um, all of the all of us are like oppressed by <laughs> the education system. Yeah, we're stuck in the same classroom, but it led us to build a like long term and deeper friendship. One of my frustrations as a teacher was hearing arguments that went like this. Well, if teachers or schools would just do X, then students would do Y. Of course, nobody likes to be criticized, so that's part of it, I acknowledge. But buried in that sort of comment is also this weird erasure of students as people with desires, opinions, and basic human agency. Schools around the world bring a lot of pressure to bear on students to get them to act in particular ways. But inside those structures around the world, students, of course, also have individual feelings about school, and they make choices. Um, so I'm Simon. I go to Homestead High School. Simon has experienced two different school systems. I was actually born in Korea, but then I spent most of my elementary school years here in America from like until I think from preschool to fifth grade. And then I moved to Korea back because of my dad's job. And in Korea, I think I lived for about four years doing you know, just middle school stuff. And then I came back for my high school education. I came back in ninth grade and I've been here since. I lived in an apartment that was literally two minutes away from school. And there was a school basically within the apartment complexes. So everyone was basically going to the same school in the apartment complex. So Korean school in general, it's really, really different. You, you're in one classroom and teachers come to you. Teachers, your math teacher come in one day, like one period, and you have like 10 minutes break after every single period and you have lunch and it's like that. And as soon as school ended, I see, you know, have the kids take a bus to somewhere and I was like, what's going on? And I realized that they're going to like school, outside of school, like basically classes, tutors, these kind of like cram schools basically to go learn more or learn more extensively about what they're what we just learned in class and it was just like really confusing because I thought there was everything to learn in school but obviously the other parents think not and I think like huge shout out to my mom for not making me part of this this hectic culture because well I know from my friends this is what they did so we got to school at like 8 15 you'd stay until I think like maybe 2 30 or like 3 3 on like a late day and then some of them would go straight to school, straight to like cram school. And they're always in like some subway stations a few miles out. And they'd stay there until like on, on hard days, they'd stay there until 11, 11 p.m. 11 p.m. is like the legal limit for schools to act, for like cram schools to have kids. So like that kind of thing is just like really, really stressful for kids. And they do this like almost every day. Like, you know, Monday is maybe math. Tuesday is English. Wednesday is, you know science or something like that they have like these specific days and specific places to go to for each subject i went to math i went to a math one because my dad was like a he was a really math guy and he thought i was struggling and he didn't want me to struggle in math so i went to a math one but even that math one was a you could go in any time three hours self-study ask questions if you have it it wasn't a you learn from a blackboard teacher teaches you every single thing that happens and how it has to happen it was a self-study thing it wasn't just academics. There were more personal changes too, as Simon tried to figure out how to express himself in a different student culture. Oh yeah, school uniforms, that's a huge part. It's just like, I was, I was never used to wearing, you know, the same thing again and again and again, you know? I was wearing a shirt, like a blue college shirt, 
like like a like a strap-on tie a vest and like a jacket almost every day and it was just so weird seeing like people wearing the same exact thing every single day the way you had to differentiate yourself in korean school was through your slippers so we are not we're not allowed to wear like tennis shoes or like outside shoes in the classrooms or in the halls you're supposed to wear like slippers and they sell them at like convenience stores but the cool kids would wear like nike slippers like adidas slippers to differentiate yourself and i was like i want to be part of that so my dad went to a business trip in america i asked him to get, get me a pair of jordan slides so that's how i was like cool Simon's parents always knew they eventually wanted him to transition back to U.S. schools, and that goal affected their choices about his education in Korea. Daniel, on the other hand, had a less intentional, shall we say, route to the U.S. Uh, my name is Daniel, and I'm from South Korea, and I'm 26 years old. Uh, I'm here for study because I want to change my major. Daniel's description of his school was similar to Simon's. We have to be at school at around at like 8 a.m. And then we have to stay there until at like around 10 p.m. And was that normal? Yeah, it was normal. And we they also regulate our like hairstyles and we have to wear our like uniforms. Yeah. And you said it's changed a lot. What do you mean? Uh, nowadays, um, students are not staying like that longer or yeah, and they can, they can change their hair color, they can perm, but we couldn't. But like I said, students are people, they have agency, they make choices. Actually, I'm, I wasn't, I wasn't a good student cause I always like slept at school and just like I went to school for just hanging out with my old friends <laughs> and sometimes I skipped my class and yeah, I was, I was not like really good student. What happened after high school? What did you do? Well, actually, my father's kind of really strict. Like, so I have to be a, I had to be a good student. So I prepared for like Korean SAT for one year more after my graduation and then I can get into a kind of good university in South Korea. After I entered the, entered the university, I also, I also did a bad student, <laughs> like, like drinking alcohol and like hanging out with all my friends and also skip classes. Despite his disengagement with school, Daniel did eventually graduate from college. He had originally chosen his major, French, under some pressure from his dad, and because majoring in French enabled him to go to a more prestigious school. I was kind of like preparing to get a job, but actually I did nothing. So my parents asked me, like, what do you, what do you want to be in your life? Or like, what do you want to, what, what kind of job do you want to have? And also, what you can do with your French major, then, then I can, I cannot, I couldn't even answer. Like, then I just, yeah, I was worried about my future. They suggest me to go to US to change the major. When I spoke to him, Daniel was attending undergraduate classes in an effort to get his future onto a different track. 
If all goes well, the flexibility of the U.S. education system will be an opportunity for him. Daniel provides one example of a student resisting the educational structure. I am Raouf, and I came from Yemen in 2010. Raouf arrived in the U.S. at age 16, just before the current war in Yemen. And the reason why I left Yemen with my family is because of the Arab Spring and the feeling that, that the country was going to be falling apart and uh, my dad was already here and uh, wanted us to join him. 5,300 miles away in South Korea, Daniel was studying for his college entrance exams. Raouf responded to school very differently. I lived in a village in the north sides of Yemen in a city called Eb, but uh, outside, you know, in the rural area, uh, sort of uh, agricultural landscape. It's considered to be one of the most beautiful, like, visited place that people like to go to because uh, in the other side of Yemen, like the south, it's dry and desert. So I think that place made me feel like sort of free because I was able to go outside, uh, smell the fresh air and eat uh, natural food and uh, felt happy and enjoyed uh, all my time in there even though I really didn't get the chance to go to school and that's because of the ongoing violence in the school but at the same time I was expected to help my family since I am the oldest uh, son and uh, my father was away from home so I was always at the farm. Raouf was able to leave Yemen before the war began but some kids actually do attend school during wartime as fighting takes place around them. You already met Omar from Syria in episode one. He attended school in Aleppo, and his time in high school coincided with the Battle of Aleppo, which was part of the still ongoing Syrian civil war. But let's back up and start with what school was like for him before the fighting. I was in a, like a special school in some sense because it was like a public school, but for like kind of like smart people and stuff. So you have, like, it's the only school that its students are not from the same neighborhood of the school. Its students are from all over the city and even from the the countryside. We didn't have facilities. Every school in Syria is basically just the school itself, like only classes, maybe some labs, maybe some a theater, and that's it, and a backyard. And, and you wouldn't see anything else except for, yeah, in some private schools. And that's not a big thing in Syria. Like, almost everyone goes to public schools. So you have your day from 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. And that's all. You have two, two breaks, and that's it. You don't have lunch. You don't have any, any other activity. You always have your same class. You always have the same 29 students with you because we were 30 in the same class. And then the teacher would come in high school. You, ha- you stay in the same place and then each, like, each subject's teacher would come to you and give you a class. Yeah. We really knew each other. Like everyone knew everyone within the school and especially within the class because we just are in front of each other for like eight hours a day, every day of the week. But then after the school, the school day finishes, we usually would go to eat, falafel, shawarma, something. And then you would go and start 
sometimes go and play football together or basketball or we would we used to go play video games together and we used to play counter-strike and like you had this one person in the class that is like always the sniper the other one is always the i don't know the person that's supposed to do something and that that definitely created a, a, a team soul within within the class did girls play video games with you for some reason the way you described that made me wonder was this an all-boys school no video games it was it was always just boys and not everyone even like they accept both girls because in syria secondary and high school you are like either only boys or only girls but then only the school it was the only public school that was mixed which actually was amazing that was one of the very special things about that school when the civil war came to aleppo everything changed one of the major things that happened was um when i was ninth grade and like in the beginning of the academic year um so there was uh, there was a uh, two suicide attacks on the main square of Aleppo, and this square is basically the main square in the city, and it, it's like very very close to my school. Um, and I was there when it happened. I was in the square walking to my school. It was eight eight uh, fifteen a.m. I was late. I remember it. And then after that, uh, after those two bombings, and uh, the whole situation changed in the city, and especially in that area. So the, basically the school closed and everyone basically stayed in their houses for that year. Now, most of the students, most of the high schoolers in Aleppo stopped studying and not just high schoolers, every student basically. Like I think 80, 70, 80% of the students stopped going to school and most of them started working to support their families because the financial expenses just got way higher because of the inflation and the prices and stuff. And also because most of the other schools also closed either because they were destroyed, damaged, or there were refugees in them. That was the biggest case. Like internally, the internal displaced people. So the thing is that that year uh, I continued. I was working uh, like on my own. I was studying on my own. I think it's worth contemplating for a moment here how much closing school because of war is not like ending classes for summer break. During summer breaks, the institution is still there. In fact, the institution is the reason you have the break. It's still dictating the rhythm of your life. Not being at school in the summer is weirdly still part of school. But in Omar's situation, the institution itself is tenuous. That feels completely different. I think that that's something that people don't re- like don't usually realize is how much you would miss school after school actually stops. Like, come on, let's be honest. The first reaction of almost everyone is like, yeah, school is done, blah, blah. We don't need to wake up 7 a.m. every day. We don't need to do homework in the night. But then a few weeks after, people started missing this this routine that they had in their lives because now their lives don't have a routine. They don't have a, they don't have a pattern. Every day you wake up, you don't know what you're going to be doing. And I think that's why the school reopened in 10th grade. It wasn't because they like the school wanted to reopen or the government or anything. No, it was because the students were pressuring the school to reopen. Like the argument was that they are afraid about our safety. And we, we were like, we know that and we are aware of it, but we don't care to be honest. Like if it's gonna, if something, if we're gonna die, we're gonna die in our, in our houses or wherever it's gonna happen. So I better be doing like having my studies while while this is taking place. Omar's school eventually reopened, but like everything else, it changed because of the war. So this school, as I told you, it was like supposed to be special and it was supposed to be for like the few 
like the the elite of the students and so we used to accept 60 students per class so you would have about 400 students but then after that year when they reopened it so they realized that this is one of the very 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 few schools that is operating in Aleppo so they decided to increase the size of the class so they can accommodate as much as many students as they can so they increased the size to 1200 students and that that meant that the class size increased that meant that way more teachers were brought in and that meant also that the the level of like the quality of the school went down but i was in favor i was like with this move because yeah my my education's uh, level went a bit down but at least someone can have education when they couldn't if we if we if we didn't increase the size of the school because of his age Omar had clear memories of school from before the war started, but younger kids did not. And what's surprising, looking at it from the outside, is not the idea of school closings during wartime. It's how tenaciously people hold on to the institution once it's established, how hard they work to keep schools open, even during fighting. It's happening in Syria now. It also happened 25 years ago in another conflict. My name is Selena Marconia, and I am a child of two Bosnian immigrants and I came to the U.S. when I was 12 years old from uh, former Yugoslavia after the Bosnian-Serbian-Croatian conflict. The war she's talking about took place between 1992 and 95. A UN peacekeeping force, including U.S. soldiers, was sent to Bosnia in that first year, 92, with a mandate to provide some protection for the local population until a peace agreement could be negotiated. It was far from perfect, but for Selena, school existed. Well, I think it's important I tell you that when I started going to school, that was when the war started. So um, they would have proclaimed peace times uh, that would be uh, indicated by sirens. So a siren would go off when it started and a siren would go off when it was over. And it was usually in the middle of the day when children were supposed to be at school. However, because my school was bombed during the conflict, I actually went to first grade in essentially a basement um, with like some old chairs and uh, desks. We didn't have bathrooms in my first school, so you would just have to figure it out. And sometimes that was not the most sanitary thing um, because the basement itself, like there was no bathrooms and sometimes there was no power, you know, and there was no water. And the reason it was a basement, it was like boarded up windows is in case the bombing happened, like we would be safer. We had drills to like get under the desk and, you know, hold each other or whatever it would be. Usually like if the siren went off and it meant the bombing was beginning, um, you had like 15 minutes. So that meant um, either, you know, getting under the desk and trying to keep safe or our parents were running to get us and there are no vehicles there. So like my parents would be like sprinting um, or I would be like grabbing my sister and we'd be sprinting home or something like that. When I was in high school, both as a student and actually later as a teacher, the sound of the first bell meant I had four or five minutes to get from classroom A to classroom B. I'm not suggesting it's the same. I'm just saying there's almost a parody of normalcy here with the siren. My bell meant walk. The next class is starting soon. Her siren meant run or hide. There's going to be bombing. The thing is, regardless of context, it was a school. And one constant in the accounts we've heard is that schools run on schedules. 
Selena's wartime Bosnian school was no exception. Well, I remember I would wake up in the morning and um, I would help my sister. And we went to the same school, so we would walk to school. And the school was probably two to three miles away. So we would walk. We would, you know, walk an hour before school started. Um, and then once we got there, we always had to be early. We would stand um, with our partner in our from our class. And you would make a row and you would stand there until the doors opened. And then you would go in there um, two by two. We would sit two per desk. We'd have like a long desk we would sit at. And usually there was anywhere from 20 to 50 students. We would be just packed in there. The way you guys raise your hand, for a long time we would raise two fingers because that was still like a... uh, former Yugoslavia kind of a thing, the communist thing that people did. And um, for lunch, it was really, um, a lot of kids did not eat lunch. You just, you nobody ate, you know, it was like that. And you would just have to wait till you got home. Then at the end of the day, we would be dismissed and then we would walk back. And I lived on top of a hill past a graveyard, so I would have to walk myself up this hill past the graveyard <laughs> every single night because school for us went from, I believe it was like 7.30 a.m. until 6 p.m. or something like that. Um, five days a week, we would get weekends off and a lot of homework. <laughs> but let's be realistic. No matter how much structure parents and teachers tried to impose on the situation, there was still a war happening. Beyond affecting resources and policies, the war also affected personal relationships. Uh, My first teacher, she actually, she was a girl and she died during the war. She taught my first grade and then one day she just didn't show up. And um, I think she, um, I don't don't know the exact thing because I was a kid, but I think that she got caught in one of the uh, bombings. And then um, I got a teacher from like, I think like second or third grade to uh, fourth grade. It was one teacher and he taught all the subjects. And then um, my relationship with him was really deep. Um, He even followed us to like our new school. Um, I used to hang out in the library with him um, sometimes during the, when we were at our new school during the bombings. And then we would just, you know, sit between the stacks and he would talk to me and calm me down and stuff. And um, so I was really close to him and I ha- he was a great mentor to me. And in fact, when I went to Bosnia um, a few years ago, it was in 2014, um, I knew where he lived because he had taught also some of my friends that still live there. And I, I walked by his house and I knocked on the door, not knowing if he was going to be there. And this lovely little old man um, opened the door and he said, Selena, and he recognized me immediately. Yeah, I I can't imagine being a teacher of students in that circumstance. It seems it seems like the parents would have to trust you so much. In in my city, in my little town, everybody sort of knew each other and everybody knew his name was Adam and everybody knew him and um it, parents really did trust him and during the times when things got really bad, he was just this like wonderful, warm, loving, caretaking presence. I can't imagine how much like courage it took to do something like that, to watch over other people's kids in the middle of something so dangerous. The war also made its way into Omar's relationships at school. Toward the end of his high school years, the Syrian government engaged in these intense attacks on Aleppo in an effort to bring the city back under its control. Omar was, ironically, at the same time, taking a class he called nationalism. In an American school, I think it would be called government or civics. And this subject is basically the basics of the constitution, how you should be behaving within the state and what are your responsibilities, what are your rights and stuff like that. But the thing is that that class, because of the war and like because of the way 
the, the, the subject is supposed to indoctrinate you with like some principles that turn the student into a person who doesn't think much, but just acts as they're asked to. So that subject created lots of nice discussions in the class because everyone is afraid of speaking. Everyone cannot speak because we know that if we say anything against the government or anything against one of the figures in the government, we will just disappear, us, our families and stuff. But the thing is that me and like very few of my best friends, we were always like, we didn't really care. So we start, like we always started those discussions in the class where you would, where you, we are showing the teacher that what he's teaching us is wrong and that this doesn't make sense. And we're like, that was, that was one of the most interesting classes because it was considered a subject that is like as a secondary subject or third and I think it was more of a psychological relief for us and for the other students to just say it out loud because we were just so done with it. In extreme situations, in wars, in sieges, I think people turn into extremes more and they start being pushed to the extremes more. So you would start having start having those like fights in the class of like, no, this is all wrong, blah, blah, blah. And then the other side is like, no, this is what's right. You don't deserve to do that, that, that. And that's what... Um, that's what triggers discussions in those. I mean, I, I'm, I'm calling them discussions now, but they were more of like arguments, I don't know, dialogues. They were definitely interesting to see and to see how even the teacher that I knew in some positions that he doesn't really agree with what's written there, but he knows that this is what he's supposed to be reading and teaching us. And that was, that was just an interesting class, definitely. As you heard in episode one, Omar is now attending college in Vermont, but the fighting in Syria is still ongoing. In Bosnia, the Dayton Accords officially ended the war in December of 95. Salina finally got to experience school in a somewhat more settled environment. My last year in school was at the end, it was two, three years after the conflict was over, and um, my school got rebuilt, and it was all brand spanking new and shiny, and um, I had a normal, I would say what was a normal Bosnian curriculum. We'd had music, we had math, we had history, but most of it was um, directed towards like, you know, history was like ancient civilizations and Bosnian history. And, you know, um, geography was mostly like Bosnian geography and European geography. So I didn't really, um, it wasn't very expansive. So far, you've heard about five-hour school days and days that stretch over 15 hours. You heard from someone who stopped going to school altogether and about classes in the midst of war. I'm going to end this episode with Shiraj. Can you walk me through uh, what a day of school would have been like in like eighth or ninth grade? Okay, ninth grade was the best year of my life. Just to remind you, he attended a 160-year-old British-style boarding school in India before coming to California. There are some pretty fascinating intersections between imperial history, social class, and modern pop culture wrapped up in this one school, and in my imagination of it as an American. But that's for you to think about later. For now, I want you to consider the activities that made up a day of school for Shiraj, and how it felt to live it. He begins by talking about the relationship between the seniors, or twelfths, and the younger boys. So they would basically, um, they would appoint one of us, one twelfth would appoint one of us as their personal assistant, but it doesn't sound, I mean, it sounds bad, but it's not bad. So it's like their um, close friend or 
Like a little brother. Yeah, like a little brother. They would just choose one of us, and then we would st- stick with them, and we would do like some of their like jobs, like our jobs. Did you have a relationship like that with one of the older students? Yes, I did. Um, you call them a boss. The boss uh, I have I had was the prefect of our house. So if you have a boss who's a prefect of the house or a head boy, then you would uh, you would be more preferred than the others. As Shiraj describes it. In a lot of ways, the twelfths, more than the teachers, are the mentors and authority figures for the younger kids. Usually everyone wakes up at 5.30 and then we have chai, tea with, with buns. And then we either, if you don't have special practice or if you're not in the school team, you, you can just jog or maybe they will tell you to do yoga. If you have a sport, you, you go to that practice. And then, yeah, we would go on for an hour or and a half hours. And then, and then we had to hurry because we don't want to get late for breakfast because we're really punctual. I mean, you have to line up before the breakfast, line up there with your shoes shined, and then your uniform should be perfect. Your white shirt should not be dirty, and then your tie should be properly tied. And then basically, you should just turn out smart because um, there are like four different houses. There used to be a competition kind of thing between the houses. Everyone would contribute their best and then the prefects would go around us checking us out and then at 7.45 we would go inside the dining hall we would have our breakfast um, usually they serve South Indian food like idli uh, dosa upma and then sambar and then they would also give us um, boiled eggs sometimes it d- dep- I mean there's like a schedule and it keeps changing and then we get done at 8.15 and then they say the grace We before we eat they also say it and then after we they say, um, for what we have received, may the Lord make us truly thankful. It's the head boys or the prefects who say the grace. And once it's said, breakfast time is over. Students who are late don't eat. Just to situate you, time-wise, it's 8.15 a.m. And then we, we would go to assembly. The girls join us at that time. Before that, it's only boys. But girls have a totally different dormitory and 100 meters away from our place. And then in the assembly, we sing a song or like a hymn wait let me interrupt because i want to ask were your parents christian or they just send you to the school because they like the education it is christian but there are every kind of people there it's mostly christian but because it was british time so we used to follow that but then i'm a hindu there's not there's nothing uh, i mean weird about that assembly also includes student presentations of various kinds ranging from original music compositions to videos to talks after assembly uh, you have your classes there would be seven periods and each would be 45 minutes and then you get a break after three periods a tea break and they would serve you biscuits and um, and tea again or coffee sometimes and then three periods after that we would have lunch did you stay in the same classroom all day and the teachers moved, or did you move from class to class? Um, the teachers moved. Uh, it was our class. We used to have a lot of fun in the class. Shiraj had more subjects at the same time than is common in American schools. Bio, physics, chemistry, computer science, economics, English, a second language. He took Hindi. History, civics, geography. So after after classes, at 1.30 you have lunch, and then you have... Then you have uh, 
our seventh period and then 3.30 we have our, our games time so you go to your sport I used to go play cricket I used to like the game and I used to also like s- score many runs and, and then if you score a lot of runs your name comes on the newspaper so yeah I used to see my name on the paper and I used to like really feel proud and I miss all that You might also want to know that this after-class sports time is the time of day to sneak off to meet up with your girlfriend, if you have one. It's against the rules, but, you know. And then we have, uh, we go back, we have a shower, and uh, it's like this open bath lab. Uh, so we wear um, our boxers, and we have a bath, and then we used to dance, we talk a lot. When we bathe, when we were showering, talking and laughing and that used to be like a free time and do whatever you want I mean because there are no teachers either and just talk about whatever talk about girls maybe or whatever Uh, maybe classes sometimes but usually not (laughs) just stop for a minute here and take stock of all the different school associations Shiraj has with the feeling of friendship and camaraderie getting dressed in the morning isn't just personal it's part of a house competition he eats breakfast with the same kids each day He spends all day in the same classroom. Our classroom, not the teacher's, he said. He plays on a team in the afternoon. Even showering is a time to hang out with friends. It's 6.45 p.m. now. The boys have an hour to do homework or nap, again under the supervision of the prefects. And at 7.45, it's time to eat. And dinner used to be the best part because it used to be like the best meal out of the three meals. Um, if it's someone's birthday, we used to, um, like we have to tell the matron beforehand and then they would get us a cake. Um, it used to be a really big cake and we would like cut it and then we would celebrate it. Usually we won't eat the cake, we'll just put it on each other. <laughs> that used to be more fun than eating it. But, but even after putting it on each other, we would eat it because it was, yeah, it, was, it wasn't dirty. I mean, even if it was dirty, but... No, no one really cared. After dinner, the students have time to watch TV, chat, whatever. They're supposed to be in bed at 10.30 unless they get permission from a prefect to stay up. How many kids were in your room? Around 20. Um, yeah, 20. They, they're like different dorms. So one dorm had like 50 kids in there. That was a huge, huge uh, room. But usually it was like 20, 30 people. And then the 12th used to have their rooms. The prefects used to have their own room where we used to sometimes get invited. We used to talk, we used to maybe make Maggie, uh, sorry, uh, noodles, noodles, and then we used to eat, talk, just, yeah. Wow, that sounds, I mean, that's like like a book, like a story to me. So let me ask you again. Picture a school you attended, or look around at the one you're in. If I asked you to walk me through a day there, how would it be different from the accounts you just heard? Would it change you to go to one of the schools you just heard about? And consider the reverse, too. What would it be like for any of the people you heard here to go to school with you? In the next episode of Points in Between, you'll hear about expectations and reality. What did people think America was going to be like before they came? And what did they find when they got here? Points in Between is a production of the California Global Education Project. I'm Shane Carter. See the Points in Between webpage for additional information about each episode.
You can find it at cispisglobal.org. Look under the Resources tab.